Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. I am doing something unique for me in the history of this podcast. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, I've shifted to try a somewhat more practical angle, and I'm doing a season of talks that have a very particular practical focus. For people who have been listening to my podcast for some time, you might know I've, I'm all over the place. I've always used the podcast as an opportunity to talk with all kinds of interesting, wacky people in the best and sometimes the worst sense of, of that term. But now I'm actually trying to do something with uh, more purpose, which is I'm trying to learn from other people who are working hard on interesting and successful digital hustles, uh, people doing interesting, essentially intellectual projects of one kind or another, but carving it out in their own unique way and figuring out ways to successfully be financially sustainable doing what is essentially creative intellectual work on the internet. And I have a very broad definition of this. I've talked with a few different people in this series so far, but today I'm joined by uh, David Cadavy, who is a nonfiction author who's been self-publishing his own nonfiction books for quite some time now. He left a quite successful career in tech just to be free and to do his own to do his own intellectual work, essentially self-publishing books. And I, David's been on my radar for a long time because there are a lot of people out there doing quite well in self-publishing who are doing fiction in the fiction world. There's a large number of people who are killing it, making good money, and having you know tons of readers. Uh, in the fiction world and romance and, and this and that. And a lot of the literature you find out there about how to do self-publishing, a lot of it is with that angle. Uh, there are far fewer people doing sophisticated nonfiction of any kind and doing it successfully. There are plenty of people doing it, but there are far fewer people doing it successfully in a way that, and writing about it and talking about it. Uh, so David's been on my radar for a long time for that reason, because I've been trying to find other people that are doing serious nonfiction in a truly independent way. And uh, David's one of the, one of the, people out there who I think is doing a great job. And he's very frank and forward about how his operation runs and what works and what doesn't work. So uh, I was very excited to talk with David. I want to pick his brain for my community and for both the the Other Life podcast listeners, but also my membership community, the IndieThinkers.org community. Other Life and Indie Thinkers are more or less an overlapping project. And for those of you who have been following what I've been doing, that Indie Thinkers is all about trying to find ways to help and support other independent intellectuals trying to do the type of project like I'm doing in my post-academic phase. So that's what we're here doing today. That's who we're here with today, David. And I think that's probably enough by way of introduction. And I think I don't know about you, David, but are you ready to just jump right in? Can I just fire some questions at you? Yeah, absolutely. Just first of all, thank you. But it's interesting to hear you make that observation about fiction versus nonfiction. And the mm. fact, this has actually been a, a, a tough thing for me. This is part of the reason why I try to write openly about my operation of publishing nonfiction, because yeah, all the advice out there is for fiction writers. And I feel like if I hear one more time about rapid release strategy for first in a series, all these things that I hear about fiction writing strategy, I'm just going to go crazy. It's good to hear that somebody else out there uh, wants to hear about uh, publishing nonfiction. 
Yeah, absolutely. Once I started taking this stuff seriously, it became very clear to me that the tactics and strategies required for doing serious nonfiction just have to be a little bit different. A lot of the advice you get from the fiction world just doesn't quite make sense. But I, I, I can't wait to hear more about what you think about what those differences are. So we'll definitely we'll, tr- we'll definitely try to get to all of that. I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind, David, just for the audience who might not know much about your work or what you've been up to over the past several years with your projects, could you give us a, a high-level overview of your operation, both practically and logistically, but also if you wouldn't mind financially, could you break down the business model of what you're doing? Sure. I guess right now, like you say, I'm primarily an author. That's the main thing I want to do is sell books. I have two full-length books. One is a traditionally published book that I published 10 years ago, Design for Hackers. Another one is a self-published book that I published two and a half years ago called The Heart to Start. I also have several what I call short reads. I don't try to add that as books that I published, but there's Mm. several of them, around 40 pages or so on Kindle or also in other other places. And then I have another full-length book, which I've actually been working on for about 10 years, Mind Management, Not Time Management, which uh, should be debuting in the fall. Currently, my readers are purchasing preview edition access to that as I release chapters. I've got five out of seven chapters out for that. And I also make a little on online courses, which I do, but it's not like I don't love courses as much as I love books. I also have a podcast called Love Your Work. That is pretty much a break-even operation. I've got some pay- couple hundred dollars in Patreon support coming in for that. I have some sponsorship coming in here and there. And yeah, and then I also make a, a decent amount on affiliate revenue as well. Primarily at this point, Active Campaign, which is a an email marketing platform. And uh, yeah. I'd say I think revenue is somewhere around seven thousand uh, a month, and profit ends up being somewhere around three thousand, or at least the way that I report in my in my income reports are not representative. They're not like my tax return necessarily. Right. They're just like the basic things uh, going on in my business that at least allow me to make decisions. Um, I'm not counting every single penny of every little thing sure. on those. And so that's roughly a few thousand dollars a month in profit. So it's it's not a huge amount. But I pivoted maybe four years ago. I've been on my own for 12 years. And about four years ago was when I decided, okay, I'm going to be a writer. I moved down to Columbia where I live now and, and began that journey. And I, I'm beginning to really get some traction now, I, I think. Okay. I was going to ask you about that too. So you moved to South America. In, in part, was that to uh, lower your cost of living? Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I don't want to feel financial pressure or I want to feel as little financial pressure as I can yeah. in, in making creative decisions. And I just found that I was doing better writing down here in Colombia. And it's also part of the experiment that, that I'm going to be telling the story about in the book that I have coming out in the fall, which is just trying to redesign my life so that I'm managing not time, but creative energy. That's the name of the book, Mind Management, Not Time Management. Yeah. So with cost of living, I simply... Just did better. Finally, just did better writing here. I could design a life around around doing my creative work, around doing my writing. I had already spent a couple months here, several different times. I had already begun a relationship here as well. Yeah, I came down here f- four years ago, and despite some bumps in the road, have managed uh, to stay. Okay, great. So your move to Columbia coincided with your decision to go full time as a writer. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. And that was very about the time that I started my podcast as well. It was, I just really, I really wanted to read what was interesting to me, learn what was interesting to me, and then find some way to make products out of that thing. And I yeah. didn't know what that was going to be. And I, I go through that process over and over again over the last 12 years of being on my own. That has been my model. And it's just over and over again, what's interesting to me? Okay, how can we make some money doing this? Hell and yeah. then also sometimes, at least for the beginning part of that especially is, all right, well, let's figure out how to make just enough money that I can get by and then I can free up that time to explore creatively. Thus, things such as moving to Colombia and, and having a lower cost of living. Okay. So right now about you're doing roughly uh, 3000 a month in profit. What were you doing when you four years ago, when you made the plunge? What was your financial profile with your independent creative projects when you took the plunge? I don't recall exactly. I was certainly making a lot more money. I was you a little more your focused. Job. You your job. No, I haven't had a job for 12 years. Oh, so what do you mean you were making more money? I would assume you're making more now than you were four years ago. So back that out for me then. Yeah. Okay. So I was a little more focused on online courses then. I've got this book, uh, Design for Hackers, teaching design principles to software developers right. um, or to non-designers in general. And I've got a course, I've got a couple courses that go along with that. And so I was a little more focused on that. As it And then I, I also had a little more affiliate revenue through one of the sites that I started when I was first on my own, which was basically an online dating advice blog where I wasn't like, it wasn't like a pickup blog or anything. It was just <laughs> hires how to use match.com dates. And, and I was bringing in, I brought on as much as $11,000 in a month of passive revenue. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. So I was assuming a different, I was assuming that it was like when you decided to go full time and move to Columbia, it was like you had just started making enough that you could be confident and then you would hustle and grow it. But for you, it's the opposite. It's more like you were making enough to move to Columbia and go full time. And then you decided to uh, focus on maybe what didn't generate the most revenue, but what you were just most personally interested in. Is that, and you actually, yeah, that's always been my model for the last 12 years is what I'm interested in, what am I most curious about? How can I make like just enough money so I can follow that? In terms of success stories, people making bank or whatever, like I'm like the worst person you could talk to because I've been doing this for 12. I started my blog in 2004. I've been on my own since 2000, since 12 years ago, 2008. All my friends are like millionaires now, people, <laughs> but I'm still just. Oh, getting interested in the thing, following that and making some money off of a, a, once I make a certain amount of money, I go do something else. And I think, I think I'm getting better at understanding the, my process and what's important to me. And so one of the things that happens when I did make this pivot to where I'm more doing like creativity, self-help, creativity, self-help type books is, is what I'm publishing currently. I had my first book, which was design. And I was very a very serious designer before that. I wanted to be a, an internet a world award winning designer. Did hmm. that for a little while. Got to the point where I wrote a book about design and basically taught my mental framework for understanding design and what is it that makes something attractive and useful in a design. And I open sourced that by writing a book. And it took me a while, I think, to realize, oh, this is what I do. My thing isn't, 
I, I, I built this platform around design and now I'm just going to bang that drum forever. My thing is that I am curious about things and I want to figure them out. Mm. And then once I'm done with that, I move on to the next thing. Okay, right on. So hopefully so, at some point I can make that, uh, hopefully at some point the, the revenue will be higher. I think that's coming soon. Okay, interesting. So you're not in a like hyper-aggressive growth mindset. You're just trying to basically pay the bills, do what you're most passionate about. And it sounds like you are hoping to grow things gradually, but you're not in this like money-chasing mentality. No, I'm very poorly motivated by money. There's so many other things that you can put effort forth Mm. For into and get things that are worth money that aren't money. Like for example, learning a foreign language and learning how to live in a different country. So your cost of living is half the price. Like right. you, can, you can, that's something that you can do and your money suddenly works better. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying about growth is true. It has been an exploratory process. My main metrics have always been creatively focused. You're probably starting to see a lot more methodical talk in my income reports. So much to the point I lost a Patreon supporter recently who was like, you're getting, you're like too much into the optimization stuff now. I know I don't like this. I liked it better when you were like creative and all over the place. But yeah, I am starting to home in on sort of what my offering is coming up soon, or at least with this book that I have coming out. And so I am starting to focus more on a little bit more on growth strategy things. Okay. So it is. It has been a very long process. I think of finding like founder product market fit, mm. and so now I've got that, and now I'm starting to feel more comfortable with being more strategic about growing things. That's really interesting, actually, and and, and that's actually somewhat insightful. I think for people listening because. It really shows that there's a lot of variability in how your path can work out. Periods of growth, periods of just chilling at a level of revenue that you're comfortable with, periods of accelerating, decelerating based on what it is you want to do and what it is you you prioritize at that moment. So that's interesting in its own way. I wonder if you could speak to something that a lot of people ask me about, or at least it's a struggle I, I hear from a lot of people who are interested in doing the stuff that I'm doing that you're doing, which is... It's pretty much the golden handcuffs problem. I'm sure you've I'm sure you've encountered this, right? I talk with a lot of people who are very smart, very creative, very capable, but they have a high paying job. And at a certain especially as you get older, uh, it's yeah. very hard to it's very hard to walk away from a high paying job. And in a way, the the high paying job can actually be harmful for your possibilities for creative growth because if you're currently making four hundred thousand dollars a year as a senior software engineer or something like that. You might be really passionate and very capable of starting your own thing and having an amazing adventure doing that, but it's going to be a while before you're back up to that amount, if you're ever back up to that amount. And I think for a lot of people, that's just that's an impossible chasm to cross. But you were in tech, so I suspect at a certain point, you were making quite good money. Can you speak to the psychology of that golden handcuffs problem? Yeah, absolutely. So for a while there, I was working in Silicon Valley. I was working at startups. This is I left Silicon Valley in 2008. So you can imagine the opportunities that were in front of me. And it was really a, a combination of maybe one, not feeling like I, I didn't feel like I had that much to lose anyway. I came from Nebraska. I was never supposed to be in Silicon Valley. I didn't okay. necessarily, I accidentally started working in tech. I'm not somebody who, I'm not a coastal elite who went to Harvard or Stanford and had all these expectations put upon me. Um, Interesting. From the day I was born. So in a way, I'm lucky that way. And then, and then it felt like 
I could see people in in that sort of golden handcuff situation where they they don't know what to do, but like all they can see is oh maybe I'll do investment banking. It's either I'm doing tech or I'm going to do investment banking, and and they're in that situation. But it was also being miserable too, uh, mm. which was I worked for a few years at startups, and then I actually ended up getting fired from the last place that I worked, and it was like I immediately. I actually thanked my boss. That was like, thank you. This is gonna be a very special day. This is July seventeenth, two thousand seven. And uh, was it a layoff, is, or did you do something naughty, or what happened? I actually didn't really ask a lot of questions about that. I think it kind of just wasn't working. And the way that the attitude I had working at startups really was like, you work at a startup for eight months and then you move on to another one. That's like the attitude mm-hmm. that people have. And so mm-hmm. I didn't really ask a lot of questions right. about it. Really, I just was like, oh, this is great. Because I was too scared to to quit. Um, right. You know, I, I didn't really want to be working there anymore. But I was too scared to quit. I, I the, you know, if, if anything, like my, my cultural programming for my upbringing was that if you don't have a job, you like don't exist. And so it was just beyond uh, my comprehension to just quit. But once I was fired, it was immediate. I, I already I had a bunch of stock that I had. I bought in this all this stuff. I was very lucky with a lot of this stuff. So we'll just, just like I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give people unrealistic expectations. I also don't want to drain them because I was very lucky with certain things. I bought Google and Apple stock, okay, in like two thousand three, two thousand four, when I was shoveling money into it in my first job. I got fired from the job in Silicon Valley, I had $130,000 or so in in stock. I immediately, actually what happened was my roommate was getting an MBA. I thought maybe I should get an MBA. And I kind of thought about the different uh, career paths with that. Well, I don't really want to go work in marketing at Procter & Gamble. Why don't I just, and getting an MBA is going to cost all this money. I've got money in the stock portfolio. It's supposed to be for my retirement, but if I'm miserable, who gives a shit? And so I just thought, all right, I just cashed out $40,000. And I just said, all right, this is my tuition for my personal DIY MBA. I'll just give myself a year because I was so burnt out. There was no way I could have possibly worked for anybody else. I said, I'll give myself a year. This is 2007. Give myself a year to just do whatever I want. I'm not even going to give myself any pressure to make money. I'm just going to explore, do creative projects. Cool. Uh, and, and so that's the way that I started out. My reasoning was, would it be better to have a business or some semblance of a business or to have tried and failed at a business and be short $40,000 or to just have a piece of paper that tells me that I know how to build a business and I haven't actually done it. That was my reason at the time, whether that's Right or not, I don't know, but that was how I began on my own. Twelve, yeah, I guess it was thirteen years ago. Okay, cool. So you had a little, you had a little bit of money. You used some of it to buy you some time, uh, clear your head, and get creative, and and to and to try to figure something out. And this is actually this is before the whole Tim Ferriss moment, or uh, probably about the same time, isn't it? You're not the same. You're contemporary of his in this regard. Actually, after I got fired, a friend lent me the Four Hour Work Week. Okay, and. So the timing was was perfect. Okay, so you were influenced by that. I was, yeah, right absolutely. And and so I did a, a a year of a year of trying to build my own tech startup, 
And I made specs, hired a developer, also spent a year just wandering from cafe to cafe with a developer friend. And we were just working on a thousand different projects, um, just throwing spaghetti against the wall. And it, it was also a, a period of feeling like we all have these sort of cultural expectations upon us. For me, for a while, it was to have a job. And then when I was in Silicon Valley, it was to be a tech entrepreneur, even though I had accidentally ended up there. Oh, I need to go raise money and make VC meetings with VCs, et cetera. And I built this product and I, and eventually was just like, well, this didn't, this isn't right. And so I left Silicon Valley 2008, about one year after I got fired, moved to Chicago to rent a, an apartment that had two bedrooms for about what I was paying for this little tiny bedroom in San Francisco. Right just to, again, experiment, to get away from the noise, to get away from the echo chamber of Silicon Valley, and to completely explore whatever was in my mind. I just really felt like I just couldn't focus on anything other than this creative drive that I had. And like, I had people offering me jobs. A Facebook recruiter got in touch with me. Some other CEO was begging me to come work at this at a startup or whatever, but I just was not interested in any of it. And yeah, again, it was felt like I didn't feel like I had anything to lose. I was I felt lucky that I even got out of Nebraska and got to Silicon Valley anyway. So what did it mean for me to leave? Right on. Okay. And so when you first took that plunge and you first, let's fast forward a little bit through the period where you're just experimenting wildly and trying to clear your head. Once you start getting into the groove that you now find yourself in of writing books and building the operation that you have now, when you in the early days of that, were there any particularly memorable things you did badly that you might want to, as a lesson, you might want to share with other people uh, at that early stage of trying to build up this type of operation? I built my first website in 1996 on AOL. Some people watching this probably weren't even born then. I started my first blog in 2004, um, just sitting there in Nebraska. And uh, I just wish I would have published more, published more often, been less afraid, had a thicker skin. Because first of all, I had very little confidence. Uh, I didn't have examples around me. Growing up in Nebraska, pre-internet, right? Well, there's not like authors living yeah. around me, <laughs> yeah, or whatever. There's not even like it, you all you all that's available is pop culture. It's hard for people to un- imagine this mm. to even be able to watch like an indie movie or or something, especially like being being a suburbanite, etc. So I didn't have the confidence, but I had all these thoughts that were different from the environment around me, but I just didn't have any way to feel confident about that. But I did have the blog and I would write things. And every once in a while, I'd get the confidence to, to write about some idea uh, such as self-investment. Everybody was telling me, when are you going to buy a house? And I'm like, what? why would I do that? I'm 23 years old. Like, why don't I could, I, I invest in myself? They're like, what's the best investment you can make? No. Like, why would that be the best investment I can make? I would be tied, I would be chained to a house at 23 years old. That's Americans are obsessed with home ownership. Yeah. And so I, and I, and I blogged about that, uh, about, about self-investment, but I didn't go at it hard when I didn't, there's so, so many times now where 15 years later, I go back and I watch, I read one of those early blog posts. I'm like, man, you were onto something kid. Like, why didn't you just, I just wish I would have pushed a little harder. Oh, that's good. That's really good. So yeah, you're saying you wish you published more early 
and got after it a little bit harder earlier when you lack the confidence, but really you should have dug deeper and had that confidence. I think that's a really good advice because I, I encounter a lot of people who are young and they ha- they definitely have ideas and they want to start developing this type of intellectual project, but they're just so hard on them on themselves. And they feel like if their blog post isn't like a genius novel discovery, it's not worth posting. And so this is really well-placed advice, David. That's good. And you also make a good point about how for someone at your age, David, growing up, it was pretty hard to find energy and confidence and and an idea network. But nowadays, like anyone can find bloggers that are super interesting and you can reply to them, right? You can actually email them. You can, it's quite, it's easier than it's ever been as a cliche at this point. But in this particular intellectual context that we're talking about, perhaps it's not actually reflected upon enough. How if you ha- if you are blessed with ideas, if you are the type of person who is blessed with ideas coming into your mind, first of all, recognize that's a blessing. And second of all, recognize that there's now no excuse at all, really, to not be developing them at like the greatest scale and frequency that you possibly can. And I think you're right. Like the sooner you start and the more you put out as soon as possible, the better will be your returns in the long run. I, yeah, I totally uh, agree that there's, there's not really an excuse not to be out there publishing stuff. It's just fear. It's something I can, this is my latest book that I wrote, The Heart to Start is really just like me trying to internalize all the things that I learned over the previous 10 years or so about overcoming that fear and just trying to remind myself. Yeah. And it's just, it's a long journey. I still struggle with it. I still hesitate. I have a good idea and, and maybe don't push it as hard as I should. Or I think, I don't know, is that going to upset somebody? Or am I thinking that through these, these sort of things that you, you tell you, or who am I to talk about this thing? Right. That you, you, you say to yourself. For sure. So that's very good. So let's fast forward even more to the current moment. And I want to learn a little bit more about how you steer your ship. You have this operation, which you described before. It's got a few moving parts. You do books. You you did do some courses, but that's less of a focus now. You now have a podcast. So why don't you try to share with us a little bit about... How do you see how do you see these parts connecting? Like what is the strategic logic of the machine? One way to describe this would be like the the typical way people describe this sort of thing is people have what they call like top of the funnel stuff and then bottom of the funnel stuff. So it sounds like the podcast isn't money maker, but is the podcast your main way that you create content for a larger audience and that brings people into your world? And then the other stuff is after that? Or how do you think about the the mm-hmm. larger design of your machine and how you steer it? Uh, it is really a machine, an engine for me to investigate or explore anything that I'm curious about. So how have you optimized it for that? Like, t- tell me, let us know some insights on the strategic decisions you've made to optimize for that purpose, whereas someone optimizing for money would, or would maybe choose something else. You know what I mean? Well, one way has been to try to create that freedom because when you're creating something and when you're an intuitive, I think I am, which is that you don't necessarily know what you're creating until mm-hmm. you've created it. Mm-hmm. Like even my latest book, I it came out of me and I was like, I don't know, is this, a, is this even a, a book? Like there's a story about Jackson Pollock calling his wife out into the studio and being like, is this a painting? <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know. So when you're an intuitive like that, things are are volatile. You're waiting for black swans to come. It's not like you're Mm -hmm. making toilet paper and you just make these many units of toilet paper and you have this distributor and you have this margin. And like, it's not creative work 
isn't that way. And so much of society is set up to make things smooth that way. Nassim Taleb would call it mediocristan versus extremistan. Mm. Do the, the creative life, the intellectual life is, is extremistan, is that you need the space, you need the slack to allow the, these creative things to happen. So for me, his, it's important to have some steady stream of income coming in where you don't have to do much of anything. I guess people call it passive income. Sure. So when I, if I just go back to when I started 13 or when I really started trying to make money at least, or when it, after my $40,000 was gone 12 years ago, it was, all right, I moved to Chicago. I was billing $100 an hour or whatever to clients in Silicon Valley. And I just said, all right, I want to bill 10 hours a week. And then the rest of that time, I'm going to try to make passive income. And then once I make enough passive income, I can start to drop down that 10 hours a week of, of freelance income. First of all, is lower expenses and then making just enough money to, to get by and then trying to build some sort of passive thing. So I had all sorts of different experimental products I was doing that were passive. I wasn't, I didn't hate them. But they weren't like my core necessarily. I wasn't like super sure. passionate about like an online dating blog. It was just <laughs> like I was dating a lot. I wrote about it. I had a blog and re- referred people to Match.com and and made money. So the way that the timing worked out with that was that when I got my when I got my book deal, which was basically an exploratory experiment paying off of three years of what's in my head. I don't know what it is and getting the book deal. I also, yeah, I, I shut off the clients then, but then also timing worked out really well with my main pass with a couple of different passive revenue things I had where that started to come in regularly because I wasn't the advance that I got from my first book was not a, a big advance, but that freed me up then to try to make that book as good as I could, which was great because I wasn't really a writer. <laughs> I struggled right. my way through writing that book in six months somehow. And it was very difficult, but I couldn't have done it. I didn't have any other focus at that time. And that was sort of the beginning of it. And, 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 and then now I still have passive re- revenue coming in through affiliates. So anything that you can find where like that you spend money on, there's often affiliate programs available. There, sometimes there's a little less in there than than there used to be, like in Commission Junction, you can find them, Share a Sale, uh, ClickBank. And there's varying levels of quality of items that you can promote. And they might be things that you're actually quite interested in. You can do a content play where you write content. For me right now, that is that I have this income coming in through Active Campaign, which is one of my affiliates, uh, they're the email marketing a platform that I use. I have YouTube videos and blog posts where I write reviews and comparisons between them and other other platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of which, almost all of which, have affiliate programs. I don't. I'm not. I'm very transparent about what's good and bad about each one. But though it's such a competitive industry that they're paying thirty percent for the lifetime of a customer that you refer. Right. So you think that you would say from your experience that uh, the affiliate game is a good one to get into, especially in the early days of trying to build up a operation such as ours? I, I like it a lot. I, I, I think affiliates is a good, it's good practice for a lot of different things because you don't have to build the product. So many people are trying to figure out how to build the products. And then they're also trying to figure out the marketing 
at the same time with affiliate stuff, you just have to figure out the marketing. Okay, um, right. I mean, there's a product and then you have to figure out how to sell it. I'm like, it's, it, it helps if you're interested uh, in it in some way. But I, I do think that it's good practice. It gets you a little bit of revenue. It gives you a little bit of confidence that you can make some money. Like some people haven't made a dollar online. Like you can go make a dollar tomorrow. Just put up an Amazon affiliate link or something and write reviews for turntables on a blog. Some people don't even know about these very obvious to anybody who, who runs online business, obvious ways to, to, to get started. And it's like right. making money. I've heard Jason Fried from Basecamp say this, making money is like playing the piano. It's a skill just like any other, any other thing. Hmm. And that at least gets you started. Right on. Okay. So you in the early days, you focused on passive income as you were trying to shift away from the, the freelance work of selling your time for and money. Passive income is still important to me. I'm not outrageously passionate about email marketing uh, platforms, but I use them. I've sure. done a ton of evaluation of them. Like, right. Why not you use that knowledge uh, in some way? And also, it, it's not terribly unrelated to what I write about because I write about create creativity and, and beginning to do creative endeavors. And when you do that, you need to have uh, an email list if you want to survive. Something I wanted to ask you about is that once you start doing this type of stuff o- over a certain amount of time, like you've been doing this stuff much longer than I have, but I've been doing it for a couple of years now. And oh, after time passes, you have many different platforms that you're managing, you have many different dashboards of a wide variety. And it can be quite overwhelming at, at times to, 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 to figure out what exactly you should be focusing on. I constantly checked all kinds of different dashboards and analytics. And I'm just curious from your experience over time, do you have a particular, what in the startup world they call like a North Star metric or one or two? Is there like one or two things that you really focus on as the, the main thing that you're paying attention to data-wise? The last two words there were the words that ruined the answer that I was going to have, which was just... Well, you can answer North, it however you please. <laughs> the North Star is curiosity. The North Star is how interested am I in this? Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the market market viability of things. But right. I, like I said, I'm starting to gain a little bit more product market founder, product market fit. Previous to that, it, my strategy was very much write about whatever I'm interested in, create content about everything that interests me or anything cool that I figure out. Okay. And then uh, review the search traffic and just see what search terms are coming in. And then very often what is, oh, I'm getting some search traffic on this keyword or there's getting a lot of impressions on this keyword in search traffic, but my ranking isn't very good. But I also don't have any content focused (laughs) around that topic. Okay. And so you start to see these clues we're like, wait, I can write a thing about that. And that through that process, you can begin to find that the the things that are interesting to people, but that people will pay for. Okay. And- so you took cues from your search analytics. You took that as a valuable signal about what you might want to double down on. What, what do you use Google Analytics or what, what's your tool? Yeah, it's, an R, it's my R&D department, basically. I've seen so much of my business as an R&D department for a very long time. And that's where I've seen a lot of stuff where we were talking about A-B testing on Twitter and I've got a semi-famous blog post shooting on A-B testing just because, not that it's not useful, but because people try to use it as a substitute for creativity. Is mm-hmm. they're just not, if you A-B test, like eventually you're just going to be making porn. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. All, so, all roads lead to porn. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's got to be some check in here of what are you actually I- I- interested in? Yeah. It was analytics for a while. Now it's search console because you just don't really, because they've changed their privacy uh, settings there with analytics and, and oh, Google search console is something is a separate service that hooks into Google Anal- analytics and it tells you what people are, how people are coming to your site through search. I'm not sure whether it hooks into Google analytics or not. I think you might be able to do it without having Google analytics, which is I've considered because I'm not really using analytics that much and it, I've got, issues got pri- it. privacy issues. Yeah. But yeah, there's a search console there and that's, that's extremely valuable data to go in there and look at. Yeah. There's so many people who I talk to who, they're just, they're thinking about doing some content and they never do. And you can literally write about anything and you're going to get some data coming in. You're going to see things coming in. And yeah, it's a little bit like it's wasted energy or something, but you can use that to iterate and, and start to get towards what, what you can do that's valuable. Okay. So, that, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is you start with just your own completely non-instrumental curiosity and whatever you f- are most interested in, start with that. And then that brings in data. And then you will allow that to guide you somewhat in what you should double down on. I think that makes a lot of sense because then you're not becoming a slave to the data. You're not becoming a slave to optimize some sort of like external alienating uh, criteria, but you're somewhat holding yourself accountable to data and to reality and to being strategic, but within the bounds that you set autonomously. Yeah, exactly. And you don't, eventually you have to make some choices. Eventually you have to say, hold on a second, is this working fine? Yeah, you're good. Nothing's changed. Okay. Hey. Eventually you have to make tough choices where you see an opportunity and you can't follow it. So this online dating blog that I was talking about, I made $150,000 off of this, this, this site during oh, its wow. lifetime. I killed it several months ago. I mean, it, it made some money in 2019, but I killed it because sometimes you got to burn your boats, mm. uh, especially if you're a person who's curious, who has shiny object syndrome who is curious about a lot of different things is probably why you're an intellectual. <laughs> and, and maybe it's, maybe that's one of the reasons why you don't want to go into academia, which was probably the main reason for me was I couldn't even, I don't think I could have even focused on one subject enough to, to, to get a PhD. And, and so if you have those tendencies, if you have that low need for closure aspect to your personality, sometimes you have to mitigate that. And sometimes you got to do things where it's all right, I'm making money on this site. I'm not doing anything. Should I keep it? And you have well, sold it? Did you think about why kill could, it and not sell it? I could have sold it, but do I don't do I want to learn how to sell a, a, a website? Right, that would be a lot of work to do. That it, it would be work to do. It, it'd be a hassle. It's not a skill that I want to build. And I eventually just decided it's occupying space in my mind. Things can happen where maybe it would get broken, and and then I would get sucked into it. And so I just killed it. That's pretty, power, that's pretty powerful. Your commitment to your own just autonomous freedom and and creativity. I'm curious. Do you have a meditative practice? You seem like quite a Zen type of person who's quite committed to not falling into any type of rat race or instrumental possession. Yeah, I do meditate every morning or every weekday, 20 minutes. Cool. And then I also have a a new practice that I call doing jack shit, <laughs> which is where I just lay in my hammock and look at the clouds and let ro- drool run down my chin for a Dude. while, which is actually like way easier than meditating That's and cool. just as good. That's cool. Do, uh, do you mind if I ask like how many hours a week do you work on average? 
I don't you, try not to you probably don't count it, hands. but just no, I, I try to be quite disciplined about it actually, because okay. it's, it's one of these things that happens when you first start on your own mm-hmm. is I'm just like, I had all sorts of weird things. Like I, I worked from 4 PM to 4 AM for a while when I first started on my own, that was like the thing that I was doing. And, and so it had these weird habits because you're like, oh, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Right. But now I have a relatively nine to five, uh, nine to seven with a nap and a long lunch where I'm maybe consuming audio content, which is actually, I've been able to engineer that. So it's a part of my work as I'm like cooking or showering or whatever that I'm actually maybe listening to a podcast episode that I'm going to be editing or that I'm going to be writing an intro for and making that part of my work. So I guess it'd be like, say eight to seven, 11 hours a day, five days a week, and then two or three hour break in the middle of that is nine, 45, 50 hours of like, realistically, right? Most people say, oh, I worked a hundred hours a week and they don't count the and time. No one does, yeah. Were, and they're not actually doing that. But And then I read a lot and I engineer that. So it's I'm always working. Like I even view relaxation as serving my goals, which some people think is really perverse. But I think when you've optimized things as much as you have for your own curiosity, and it's very clear talking with you, you really have thought long and hard about separating yourself from uh, the money grind and the instrumental forms of possession that can occur. If you've done that adequately then you can work 50 hours a week without falling into a bad rat race, stressed out mentality, because it sounds like you've made allowances so that a good chunk of those work hours every week is actually reading in a way that's genuinely curious, that's genuinely personally motivated. It's not like a hustle. So so I wonder if there's a lesson there. Like it, It's almost as if by really taking a lot of precaution and insulating yourself from obsession with money or with optimization, you've actually allowed yourself to work longer hours in a way that's more stable and more fulfilling or something like that. Yeah, possibly. I like I don't view my reading as work necessary unless I'm specifically looking for a particular thing, but it is very much a part of my process to read exploratory, have exploratory reading. And that's where I find stuff all the time. And I have a system for managing that knowledge when I find something and I highlight it and I want to use it in a book in the future or something. So right. in a way I am always working. Uh, every once in a while, I do need to like remind myself to just shut off my brain. It can be a little bit of a prison that you create for yourself when you build everything around your curiosity and what you want to enjoy to do. It does become like you're always working and, and prison is a strong word. It's quite nice. But if I sit down, if I feel some inspiration on a Saturday morning and I sit down with a whiteboard and I start, you know, writing some ideas that I'm going to erase, but that I'm at least exercising, like I don't work on a Saturday, but that's clearly pushing me towards something. And yeah, I, I view it as I, work. I'm the same. I don't work on Saturdays and that's when all my best ideas come and I'd actually end up doing the best stuff. <laughs> like I'll actually, I'll get some great idea and I'll, I will end up working even though I say I'm not going to. I tell my wife I'm not working today, but then I'll get her. I'm so relaxed and open-minded. I get a really good idea and then I'll actually work on it for three hours straight and I'll actually do something really quite valuable that then becomes something valuable later. So it's weird how that works, isn't it? It's actually the focus of the book that I have coming up, Mind Management, Not Time Management, which okay. is basically that you you look at the way that we look at time. We look at time as this linear thing. We look at it as this resource to be managed. But when you 
and then that's leftover from Taylorism. That's leftover from mm. how quickly can we move these bricks and put them in a wall and build a brick wall. And so that's leftover. And if if you have your best ideas when you're relaxing on a Saturday, or I often have my best ideas like if I go on if I happen to go on vacation for a week, somehow in the middle of the next week, <laughs> suddenly I have this great idea. Yeah. When did the value happen there? Like mm-hmm. it's not because of the number of hours I was working. It was setting my mind into into the right state in order to create something. And sometimes that involves not doing anything. We're giving everyone who's listening to this a, a great justification to just be lazy as fuck sometimes. You know, it's actually the best way to to be powerful and create value. <laughs> I think it's barbell strategy. Right. I, I think that's the best best way to describe it. Is like I always have a morning in the mornings, it's like most important projects for the first hour of the day or whatever. And then it, it starts to starts to relax a little bit. And I have a system for managing my creative energy. And, and, and there is like times where you're like, you're, okay, you're not slacking off here, but then you're also slacking off in a way later on that it happens to feed into what you're doing. Right on. David, I think I only booked you for about an hour. Do, do you have to run or are you good to go a little bit longer? I don't want to be I'm, respectful. Of- oh, thank you for asking. I'm fine. I'm enjoying myself. So yeah, glad to talk longer. Cool, cool. We'll go a little bit longer than I, I won't abuse your the the privilege. One thing I wanted to ask you about, just switching gears somewhat randomly, is something that I know absolutely nothing about yet, but I know that you have been doing for some time, which is advertising. I know you run advertising campaigns for your books. I would love to hear a little bit about that from a high level, especially maybe geared to someone like me who's I probably am at a point where I could start experimenting with that and maybe effectively, but I I don't really know. I just haven't really felt that yet. I just haven't gotten there. So what would you say to someone like me who maybe has published a few books of their own uh, and are you know pleased with their results, but are thinking about advertising, especially advertising for books? Uh, any just general high-level principles that I should be aware of? Yeah. So I saw one of your books on Amazon. Are there more? Yeah. No, there's only one. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Amazon's basically paid for play, pay to play now, which is... Unfortunate, but at least Seth Godin, who really knows a lot about publishing, said publishing has always been expensive. It's just that self-published people don't didn't know that. So I'm paying. I've spent as much as six thousand dollars in a month to make seven to sell seven make seven thousand dollars in, in wow. royalties on books. And I, I when I put that on the the Reddit self-publish thing, people were like, "Wow, you made a profit! That's amazing!" And then else people were like, "I can't believe you spent six thousand dollars." <laughs> Uh, but I have an unlimited budget for advertising that clearly works, and seven thousand dollars is more than six thousand dollars. Yeah, Amazon is basically pay for pay to play now. Yeah, you can make some more organic sales come through, but if you want to maintain visibility, you pretty much have to be running ads. Is that uh, true for all books? Would you say, or are there heuristics about when you should do that or when you shouldn't, or you, do you believe that applies as a general rule for books I think on you Amazon? Wanna, you want to have some reviews at least. If you're gonna, if you're going to make a profit, I'm fortunate in that my main book. I think I had 50 reviews before I started advertising. Now I'm cl- approaching 300 reviews, and 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 I've run a lot of keyword ads, which I think at the very least an auto campaign, which is Amazon will find the keywords and running that and playing with a budget and and looking at it as a learning experience. A lot of people they spend five bucks. They lose it. They don't sell books, and then they freak out, and then they just never advertise again. Mm. Uh, so you you got to invest in it in learning it, 
And I think the, the auto campaigns are quite good because I have really gone down the rabbit hole in terms of trying to optimize keyword ads using things like presses on and setting up an auto, automations where there's different campaigns that are feeding into each other. The lock screen ads, uh, the Kindle lock screen ads, I'm able to make a profit decently with those. I think a lot of people get frustrated with them because the reporting is really bad, which you can see in my latest income report, which I think you have already read. The reporting is bad. What in your KDP dashboard showing you how many books you're selling is going to be way more than what you're seeing in your Amazon ads dashboard, which is telling you that you spent all this money and you didn't sell any books. Because it's weird because Amazon, they could be the biggest ad platform in the world, but their ads actually suck. Like I'm getting these, these like romance novels ad, advertised to me on my Kindle and not my genre. Never read that before. They advertised my own book to me which was cool. But then I realized, wait, I already bought my own book. Like, how, why are you advertising it to me? <laughs> and then also the reporting is, is, is pretty bad too. But I would say auto campaign at the least, experiment with the lock screen ads, and they can take a while to turn on. And, and the reporting that is not necessarily going to be correct. And so if you can isolate where you don't have, if you don't have sales coming in and you aren't spending money, and then you run an ad and then you can look at your sales and you can start to cross-reference that way. So you have to be quite methodical about to know, to not be stabbing in the dark. Okay. But you think really the only prerequisite is having some reviews, presumably positive reviews. And then from that, you should have some success with ads on Amazon as a general rule. There are in cases where you think, don't bother. It, it, it's hard for me to say because it, of I, I feel like I've spoken to so many people who just can't have any luck with ads for some reason. Mm. And I don't know why I'm in a fortunate position where I've been building a platform for years and years. And so I don't have a ton of trouble making some organic sales and getting some reviews to at least get things started. But it is a flywheel. And in fact, this is an interesting thing is that some people can't get their ads to run even. And Part of the reason why they can't get their ads to run is they're not making organic sales or maybe they're not bidding, bidding enough and they're not making organic sales. It's like when you have organic sales coming through, Amazon runs your ads more. So I woke up one morning and Seth Godin, who is a popular author in the marketing space, extremely popular, had blogged my book, had recommended my book on his blog, and I had a huge spike in sales. But I went and looked at my ads. I also had a huge spike in ad spend. So it was as soon as I was selling, making the money, selling books, Amazon was also spending it, which I didn't like. I still made more money than I would have normally, but you have to have some patience with it. I think that's part of the problem people have is they can't even get their ads to run, which I was, I just try to make a ridiculously high bid and, and, and at least get it started with it. just not being afraid to lose a few bucks in the process of learning because you can you can start selling books and the, the quote unquote right way to be a nonfiction author is to have the back end to have I've got my course I've got my coaching and then I've got my book and then the book is helping me sell that stuff right. I'm not doing it the right way I just like books and I but I'm still able to make a profit if I had a back end business I would be like. I would be willing to lose money on my books. You got, if, if The difference between giving away a book for free and spending $10 to get somebody to buy your book for $10, those are two different customers. Because one of them spent $10 to buy your book. 
And that person is going to value your book more. They're reading your book. They're reading what you wrote. If it costs you $10, okay, like you get $7 royalty. So let's say it costs you $7 to get $7 royalty. That's pretty good. It's a good start. There's a cash flow problem there because Amazon takes roughly 90 days to pay you and you have to pay for the ads up front. Right. There's a cash flow issue there. Uh, so you build things up, but it can be a lead generation. Yeah, right on. Okay, that's great. So the basic lessons I'm getting from you are uh, you're a big fan of Amazon ads. You think they're quite worth it. You should have some reviews first. Uh, use the auto keyword option. You've had a hard time beating that through any custom approach and uh, try to keep the organic sales going to, to keep the ads. And Pricing also promotions work very well. What is it? Pricing promotions work very well. We're just like, because Amazon's algorithm also has various cliffs in it, I've been told of 30 mm. days, 90 days, perhaps there's one of less as well. Is it like you have a big spike, you'll have a bump for 30 days. If you have a big spike, you're going to have a bump for uh, another one for like 90 days. Okay. And so regularly putting on your schedule, some pricing promotion and having some place to promote that, such as an email list. Like I've began experimenting with having ones that I send to new subscribers and then every once in a while, one that I just send to the whole list. I'm doing a pricing promotion with BookBub in a couple of weeks here. Uh, and by is, for people who don't know what you're talking about, by pricing promotion, you just mean lowering the price for a temporary time. Put it on sale. Right. Exactly. And so my book is, my book, The Hard to Start, I crowd edited it. People read it for free. It was for free on Amazon for a little while. This is two and a half years ago. So got gave away, what, 3,000 books, something like that. I don't know. Then for a while it was 99 cents. Then for a while it was 2.99. Then for a while it was 4.99. It's been 9.99 for quite a while now. Okay. And so now I'll do a promotion every once in a while for 2.99. It'll be 1.99 in my BookBub promotion that's coming up soon. And that is that's a very BookBub is this would be my first BookBub promotion. I'm told it's it is it's your big break because really? it does they're going to send it to a million people. Okay, interesting. See, I always thought all of those platforms were primarily for fiction. So that's interesting. So the how-to and advice, how-to and advice category. I'll be it'll be sent to a million people. It's going to cost me a thousand dollars. I will. They estimate thirteen hundred sales per book. I will make. It's going to be a dollar ninety nine, and that's in Amazon has a thirty five percent royalty uh, rate at that price. So I'll be getting like seventy cents each. So it is going to be like, can I break even? But also. I'm told that if I stack it with some other promotions, I might have a chance at a Wall Street Journal bestseller run. Interesting. Um, so how does that work? So through. Wall Street Journal indexes to BookBub or what's up with that? The, Wall Street Journal has an ebook section and it, self-published books are eligible for it. I'm told roughly 3,000 to 5,000 books between in a week, roughly Monday through or Sunday through Saturday. If you can sell that amount of books, you can perhaps hit the list. And I know several self-published authors who have, who have done that. Now, it's part of me is, is I shit on those lists because who cares if the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times thinks that your book is great. That's just another mainstream channel, but it means something to, to, to people. It does sure. improve your reach. I still think that if you get the little bestseller tag on Amazon and it says bestseller, you're a bestseller. That's end of story. Some people will argue with that. Yeah, I think my book was like close to, I think it might've been number one or very close. I, I have the records in like the anarchism section. It was like bestseller in anarchism. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're a best-selling author now. So, <laughs> yeah. 
It's funny. Who, who, tell me it's not true. Yeah, I mean, no, for sure. What a lot of people don't realize is that the, even the most official lists are totally fucked with. The, the New York Times bestsellers, they will literally just oh, like yeah. someone's buddy. You, you have a buddy on the on the board and they'll like, it's totally jiggered with. It's Even the most official, seemingly rigorous and prestigious lists are essentially like someone's friends deciding that. New York Times especially, yeah. it's, it's not just sales. Like they curate that list. You can sell a lot of books and not be on that. I don't know if that's true for Wall Street Journal, perhaps. But yeah, that's the whole that's the whole thing is it's funny. There's uh I, I call myself a best-selling author. I did have a book that was in the top 20 of all of Amazon for a little while. Nice. It's not a huge stretch. And then I've had the number one bestseller tag, which is no, that's super hard legit. To do. That, that's super if you were in the top 20 of all Amazon, that's no yeah. stretch at all to call yourself a best-selling author. Yeah, for sure. But I think that you are a best-selling author too. And and uh, people in traditional publishing will argue with that. Now, that's not a real bestseller. There's people who are but but I think that the the conclusion is really just maybe it's just that there's not three parties deciding now who's a what you should read. There's there are definitely hundreds of categories. There are definitely books on the New York Times bestseller list that are, are in some sense not real bestsellers. Uh, like they did not get there through a objective indexing oh, yeah. process. So yeah, I, I agree with you, you that can, it's all you can buy, you can buy the list too. There, there's services that will do that for you. I don't remember what it costs forty thousand or. Something like that. I think you need to be a, a, a traditionally published. You don't like need to be a traditionally published author. Don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm pretty. It's pretty hard to do as a self-published author if it's doable at, at all. But people buy it. Yeah, you totally see people who are New York Times bestselling authors, and you can just look at their Amazon page. Like they did not sell that many books. So we have a few questions from the audience. Not too many, so it shouldn't take too long. But I feel like we should maybe transition to that. I want to. I want to let people yeah. get their questions in. So one question is uh, from Grassy Nall. And the question is, I believe this is for you, David. Uh, you mentioned having a system for managing material you find while reading for later use. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us what's that, what is that system like? Absolutely. I'll preface it with a famous one, which is Ryan Holiday, who has the, the commonplace book. He writes, he reads books, paper books, then writes down on index cards, the passage, and then has these boxes full of these things. And that's the way that he organizes it. And I, I, I started with that a little bit. It was a nightmare. Mm. And then when I moved down to Columbia, one of the things that happened was I could not really get paper books so much anymore. Mm. And I was sad about that, but I did have to start getting Kindle books. And it turned out to be great because now I highlight on my Kindle Yellow is general highlight. Blue is whenever I see a pattern, like this is a story I might want to use. And this is a theme that I'm thinking about. Orange is I need to follow up with it. Like it's a book recommendation or they mention some historical fact that I want to look up later. Pink is this is a word that I don't understand, some term. That's when I was reading on my iPad. Now I have a regular Kindle. So I use, use O, P, Y, whatever. Or I don't use Y as the default. So I highlighted my Kindle. And then I have a service called Readwise at readwise.io. Fantastic service. I don't know how much they do on their free plan. I'm not exactly sure, but it syncs all my highlights. And I, and then it sends me every day just a random set of highlights from my whole collection of highlights. So it resurfaces these ideas. And it resurfaces, that as, it resurfaces them in a context where I can now act on them. I don't need to stop reading. Like I get the orange... If I see like an orange one come in, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll look that thing up now. If I see a blue thing come in, I would say, maybe I'll write a tweet about that. 
or maybe I, oh, maybe that goes with a book that I'm writing and I put that somewhere. And, and, and so I'll re- review things that way. And with Readwise, you can manually add highlights too. So if you have paper books, you can manually add highlights and you can tag things and organize them. And, and that's how I collect reading, but I'm also always capturing. I always have whiteboards lying around the house, a notebook in my pocket, an inbox on my iPhone SE. And then those things, uh, I try to keep rituals of getting those inputs and then putting them somewhere where I might be using, I might need to use them later. So I'm just trying to always capture because think about like a building that is really tall has a water tower on the tower because it's not very efficient to pump the water up. Every time somebody opens a tap, so you pump all the water up, you have it stored on the tank. And then when you need it, someone opens the tank, then you got the water. So like, instead of sitting down and trying to think of great ideas, just trying to always capture and have a good way to be able to manage them. Right on. Yeah, that's nice. That's a nice metaphor for sure. Great. Thanks for answering that one. And another question here is from uh, Joshua Hansen. Joshua asks, and honestly, this is probably a lot of people are probably thinking about this because I a bit of background. A lot of the people I talk with and in my orbit are thinking about probably doing their first book sometime in the not too distant future. And people have varying audience sizes, usually quite a modest audience. They have never, they've never published a book before. So a lot of people listening to this are curious about what you're sharing because they're thinking about gearing up to do their first book launch uh, in one way or another. And so Joshua's question is, if you don't have a lot of cash and you're writing your first book and it's in a very narrow niche that is perhaps not as marketable as the advice or the how-to genres, like a lot of people I hang with are doing obscure stuff on history or politics or different types of more academic topics that don't really have a clear you know, value proposition. Not a lot of people probably are going to see it on their Kindle screen and be like, oh, this, uh, I, I want this today. You know what I mean? So with that different type of challenge, and especially if you don't have a lot of cash and you're doing this for the first time, do you think ads are still a viable thing or uh, maybe not? And and if not, if you have any other words of wisdom for this particular type of author situation? Yeah. Uh, keyword ads would certainly be worthwhile. So somebody's searching for the topic, though also thinking about the right keywords in your title and the subtitle. I have a book called How to Write a Book, or it's a short read called How to Write a Book. And then you can see I have an extremely long subtitle. I filled the subtitle up with all the keywords that I could that might be related to it, just to be just mischievous. And the, the book does pretty well. It gets decent organic search. So thinking about what keywords people might use, you can also do some research on those keywords and see the volume. One way to do that is to type in to Amazon search bar. You start typing. And then if it shows up in the auto suggests, somebody's been searching for it. Right, And so you can find key keywords out. I would also like to challenge this idea that if you're into history or you're into these academic things, I don't know specifically what, or say philosophy, if you're into any of these things that you can't make it marketable. Maybe I can understand that there might be ways of writing that you do in academia, but look at say like Ryan Holiday, if people are familiar, has basically looked at stoic philosophy and turned it into self-help and has something going. So if you're, especially if you're, it's hard for me to imagine if you are studying a philosopher, first of all, why would you be studying the philosopher? If it's, if this philosopher is useful for your life, can't you communicate that 
to to people. People need to people need mental operating systems to get through life now more than ever. So it, it takes some learning, but I, I do think that uh, if you're creative, you can really turn a lot of things you wouldn't expect into marketable ideas. Yeah, that's a really good point. I appreciate that pushback. I guess maybe I can be a little fatalistic or resigned to the fate of impractical, non-instrumental value. And if you want to do ac- academic writing, go be an academic. But yeah, no, it's a good point. You're right. And no matter how academic or seemingly obscure and non-useful or non-practical your topic is, if you're interested in it for some reason, so it's like finding why it is you're personally interested in it is possibly the a, a hidden key to creatively framing it in a way that could resonate with people's desires and values more. Stoicism, like when Ryan Holiday started beating that drum and Tim Ferriss was helping him beat that drum, it was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> but it's huge. It's right. huge now. It's but you know what, what a lot of people would say, David, is that, that this is a problem, right? And that this is, uh, there's nothing wrong with useful, actionable, practical books by any means, but that there is a problem, especially for more intellectual purist types of people, which is that if you're reducing or seeking to reduce every possible disinterested intellectual topic into some type of sexy, actionable, practical thing, that in some sense, this is a capitalist machine like chewing up and spitting out everything that's beautiful and true and and pure into grist for the mill of just another commodity. And I do think there's something there. So your point is well taken about finding the useful upshot of whatever it is you're interested in. But I wonder if there is still open space to be explored in the in the production and the financially sustainable production of more disinterested, not useful stuff. People will buy books that are just like a, a biography of a thinker or a, a history of book about about some particular period that they're interested in. There's no there's nothing useful about it, right? That is something that exists. It's just I don't know if many people have really cracked that nut in the self-publishing world. Maybe they have. Maybe I'm not as familiar. If I can think of my least marketable book is about the font papyrus. Oh yeah. And I just got obsessed with it for a year and wrote like a 7,000 word essay on it. And yeah, it sells nothing, but it was a black swan play. It was a, all right, this is likely not going to sell anything, but it's weird enough. And it's a Mm. bold enough like offering that it's possible that someday like Boing Boing will be like, how does this even exist? And blog it or something, and and Interesting. it will explode. Um, and did you say? Did you say it's only seven thousand words? Yeah, well, that's another so, thing. Is is, is that I, I want to encourage people to publish a book tonight? I actually did this. You can put whatever name you want in the author field. You can publish a five hundred word anything tonight, and you can unpublish it when you're done. You can run some ads on it. You can try to get a friend to buy it, see what happens, watch your ranking, see what happens. Huh. Go through the process. You can unpublish it when you, if, if you want. It'll always be, in, I'm like, I still have the one that I wrote in my, in my reports. It's always there, but it's not, I unpublished it. So I published so no like a 500 word thing. But once you go through that process, once you see your book up on Amazon, mm. you're like, that was scary easy. Huh. I mean, right. it really gets your gears going. And and so I have these short reads too. So I have books that are 4,000 words. I've got how to write a book. It's, avail- it's, a, it's available as a free blog post, but it still makes me thousands of dollars. It's a 7,000 word thing. I've translated it into Spanish. Huh. You can write short reads. If it's a blog post 
might as well be a, a Kindle book too, because two ideas here that I want to talk about. One is if you go to a bookstore, there's a 10 page book and a thousand page book. Which one are you going to notice? You're going to notice the thousand page book. It's got a big fat spine on it. You can see it mm. on the shelf. The 10 page book is just a little pamphlet. On Amazon, you could put up a 10 page book. It's got the same real estate as War and Peace. Right. You can, so, and each one that you write, each one that you promote, you learn something like, oh, there's some parts that were surprising. So, and you, yeah, and yeah. you can make, and you can make a good chunk of change on quite short books of 7,000 words. Those can pull in as much money as longer books. Is that, is that that's what you're saying? My, the book that I have, How to Write a Book, has been very surprising. Wow. I, I, I do run ads on it. I could not run it. If I shut off all ads for The Heart to Start, which is my 140 page full length book, and then How to Write a Book, which is 40 pages. Uh, how to write a book would probably, if I started from scratch, we'll say, because now the hard to start has a better reputation. But if I started from scratch, how to write a book would definitely sell more because the hard to start, the value offer isn't as as straightforward. Mm-hmm. You can do the, you're writing about a topic people are going to search about, or you can do this sort of thing where you're trying to change the culture with an idea and the potential is bigger, but you got to get over the hump first. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you. I'm glad you pointed that out. I haven't. I, I. I think I on some level was aware of that, but I never really thought about it that way. So that's useful. Yeah. So I would encourage people anyway, just to if you have, especially people who have. I've been working on this book for five years, and they're just putting so much into it. There's just so much unknown. Put out like a five thousand word short read, or do a five hundred word thing tonight, and then unpublish it. Just do. Just to learn how it works. Something smaller that will reduce some of that tension. That's great advice. That's really cool. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. If it's not too much, maybe one more question. This is a big yeah. juicy one. It's a big juicy one. If you're, if you still got the, if you're not, if you're not too tired, it's a good question from Lim asks, do you think the most disruptive developments to the publishing model have already occurred or are they yet to come? In other words, how stable do you see our current situation? Will we even be self-publishing on Amazon 20 years from now? So Maybe that's an example at the end there, but the larger question I think is, are you thinking about, or do you see any major changes imminently on the horizon? I have a tough time imagining us not self-publishing on Amazon years from now. I would, uh, I'll start with, I don't know, but also, but just to speculate, of course, I think that a lot of the changes have happened, but people haven't noticed. Like people don't know, like people still don't know that, they can put a book up on Amazon tonight. Right. People still don't know that. They just like your Amazon, it, it's so deceiving to a lot of people don't know the difference between traditional publish and self publish. They're like, oh, you wrote a book. I, I've seen, well, I was looking, I was researching somebody the other day and she had one, written, uh, she was a comedian and she had written some like 10 page book or something. And then I like did some Googling and there she's on like these news programs talking about this book. Because the media is, does, does, doesn't really care about the difference. 250 pages. Yeah, you have, yeah, you've got a book. You want to talk about this topic? Okay, let's go. So it's funny. I think that a lot of things about books have changed and the catching up hasn't been done. Like this idea that you can write a blog post and make it a book. People aren't getting that as much as I think they should. And think of it about, about it this way, all right? The attention economy model sucks. That's why when you search for stuff, now the, the information you find is getting worse and worse. There's more and more pop-ups. There's more and more ads. There's more and more privacy invading middleware. But go on go on Amazon, search for how to add a device to your Kindle account. 
you will find several books that are like $3 and they're about how to add a device to your Kindle account. And you will find people complaining that this should be free information. Okay, like it's a questionable like thing to do, but there's very there's something very interesting in that, which is that the Kindle is a paid web browser. Is is that these people searched on Amazon because they thought they were going to find a help document and they found this book and they bought it. And people search for things on Amazon and they and there's certain people who heck me, I would rather buy a book for $4 than search on the internet even for most things because the content is so bad and who of course it's bad because there's no way to make money doing it hardly other right. than there's a few different options either fill it up with ads and try to get people to click on stuff or there is try to get people into your funnel but it, a book buying a book is just a way more honest exchange it mm-hmm. is value for value it is here obviously People write books for all sorts of reasons, and there's books that are not that helpful or that are just for making money, but it's a different, there's different mechanics at work there than just can we get people to click on this headline so that it will show up in Facebook's algorithm more? Like that game has changed media in some very bad ways. And the things that people will click on to, then game the algorithm on say Facebook, Mm. the things people will click on and things people will pay for different things. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's yeah. Anyway. So uh, there's a lot of things that have changed and I just think that the world hasn't caught up yet. And the opportunities, there's a vacuum right here. And if you're brave enough to go out there and keep publishing and learn and try to figure out how to be good at this, and, and then to one day have your full length book out that you will be so much better at marketing than you would have been before. That's uh, blue ocean right there, I think. Yeah, that's very well put. Yeah. And I, I like that answer to the question. You're basically saying that the publishing revolution that's already happened in some sense over the past several years hasn't even fully come to fruition because most people don't even realize the the implications quite yet. So it's almost like the answer to the, the, what I'm hearing from you, David, that your answer to this question that Lim posed is it's 20 years from now, we're still going to be probably experiencing the tail end uh, of the revolution that we're already living through because apparently it takes time and apparently people are slow to update. And so it's almost, like, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, Perhaps I'd like to add to it. I, please. Actually, it's just that uh, it also was our idea of what a book is. Our idea of what a book is, is oh, it's 200 pages and it's made of paper. And a lot of that is left over from economics, the economics of traditional publishing, which is cer- there's certain unit cost economics there that make it so that we, we want books to be 200 some pages. And so then you end up with these books that are one idea, one basically a blog post, 250 pages of filler, because that's the way the economics work. And then you have do- right. authors also who are killing themselves over their launch because there's certain resources that are available in the publisher, such as a publicist or whatever. And this publicist is assigned to this book for this long. And we're going to see if it does well. If it does well, then maybe we'll add some more resources. If it doesn't do well, then forget about it. And so authors also have that idea of things. And don't forget that pamphlets powered all sorts of the English revolution, the uh, feminism, uh, the American revolution, pamphlets powered these things and they made money for the people who published them. Hmm. And I'm not saying that every public, every pamphlet was like highly intellectual or something, but blogs were supposed to be the new pamphlets that didn't work out. 
So why aren't we publishing more pamphlets? Right on. I think that's about as good a closing as I could have hoped for. Uh, David, I just want to thank you so much for for your time. People seemed uh, like they were quite entertained and, and interested in what you were putting out. So thank you so much for coming on and for being awesome. generous with your time and teaching us all that you've been able to. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. More than welcome. It's been fun. And uh, yeah, let's stay in touch, shall we, David? Yep, absolutely. All right. I'll let you go now. Thanks again. All Take care. All right, everybody. That was cool. Oh, I forgot to invite David to plug his work. So I'm going to do that for him right now. You should go check out David. He puts out a lot of like high quality blog posts, basically showing the financials of his system and a lot of the stuff he was talking about today. He's written blog posts about... You can find a bunch of his books on Amazon. I'll just say that if you're working on a book or if you're trying to do any of this stuff, you should reach out to me because I'm very lucky that a lot of people right now are talking to me and networking with me. I'm getting a lot of emails and DMs from people who are basically trying to write books and trying to do this type of stuff just like I am. So I'm super into it right now. I'm happy to help if there's any way I can. So please don't be shy. Email me, shoot me a DM. Or if you are if you do have an active project that you're trying to develop, you might want to check out indiethinkers.org. You can request an invitation if you want. It's still in private beta. I'm not really hyping it up too much because I'm, I'm still building it. But we have a ton of cool people in there already. And uh, it's off to a great start. Yeah, if it's got a bunch of features basically to support people who are trying to do their own independent intellectual work because it's not easy and it's a weird, new, confusing world. Yeah, I'm basically trying to build some systems and structures that can uh, support other independent intellectuals like myself trying to figure out this new uh, frontier, if you will. And uh, for the next few weeks or months, maybe even, I'll be, as I said at the beginning of this, really focusing my podcast on trying to bring in other people who are skilled and experienced in different aspects of this new world of digital hustles, trying to learn how serious intellectuals can play this content creator game in perhaps new ways that have not yet been fully uh, understood by people. So that's what I've set my mission to, trying to uncover that and share whatever lessons, insights, tips, and tricks I can. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.